Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Tuesday, January 25th, 2022. It's our first podcast of the year. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me, as always, is Glenn Hubbard, professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. Glenn, how are you today? I'm great, Tony. How are you? Doing very well. Doing very well. Glenn, so topic A among economic topics these days has got to be inflation. So I thought we could spend this time talking about inflation. Uh, a little background, as you know, inflation measured as the percentage change in the consumer price index was at 7.1% in December. So that is the highest inflation rate we've seen since 1982, which was the tail end of the great inflation of the, that began in the late 1960s. And one of the things about inflation in 2021 was not only was it high, but a lot of economists and economic policymakers were taken by surprise by how high it was. I went back and I looked at uh, what the Federal Reserve's Federal Open Market Committee was projecting inflation would be. So as you know, each member of the, of the FOMC makes predictions for the coming year for, for key economic variables. And on average, they expected for 2021, 1.8% inflation. Now, they were looking at the inflation rate as measured by the personal consumption expenditures price index, which, as we talk about in the textbook, is a broader measure of inflation. And if you look at, well, what actually happened to PCE inflation, we don't yet have the December number, but through November, it was running at 5.4%. So they thought we'd get less than 2% inflation. In reality, we got, by this measure, well more than 5% inflation. So that's a big miss. So the two related questions, I guess, are one, why was inflation so high during 2021? And why did a lot of economists and economic policymakers get taken by surprise by the high inflation? Well, great questions, Tony. And in, in some sense, from a teaching perspective, uh, this topic is great. Uh, you know, my students always looked at me like I was talking about the spinning Ginny or dinosaurs when I talked about inflation. I was actually in graduate school in 1982. My, my formative years as an economist were shaped by thinking about this. And I, I, to your question, I think that inflation offers an opportunity to talk again about our favorite topic of, of supply and demand. So why was inflation so high in 2021? You know, as we've talked about on the podcast and we do in the book, this is a pandemic. And in the pandemic, there were a number of supply constraints in materials, in the labor market, uh, in distribution channels that led to cost push inflation. At the same time though, both the Federal Reserve and the government were pursuing policies that added a lot to aggregate demand when it was the supply side of the economy that was binding. So where did inflation come from? It came from a mix of those factors. Now, if you, if you think about them in turn, the cost push factors will likely abate as the economy 
recovers from the pandemic, as supply chains are reconstructed. On the demand side, though, there's both a policy element and a long and variable lag point that Milton Friedman and others made uh, decades ago that says that might be around a while, might even get into expectations. Why did people miss it? I expect it's because they were looking in the rearview mirror. So after the financial crisis, a number of economists thought that inflation would rise with very accommodative monetary policy. It did not. It stayed under the Fed's target for most of that period, target of 2% for most of that period. But that was a period when there was a big hole in aggregate demand, and that is what the Fed can try to fill. In the pandemic, of course, we had a different experience. So I think people were operating with a rearview mirror or the wrong model. Uh, I do think the Fed made a policy mistake. I don't even think that's that arguable uh, at this point. The question is how quickly they can turn it around. What do you think? Yeah, I think that that's right. In the updated version of uh, our the eighth edition of our textbook, we do show how you can use aggregate demand and aggregate supply analysis to account for what happened during the pandemic. I suppose there's one other sort of bigger point that might be worth mentioning. You know, what was it that that Yogi Berra, the old Yankees catcher, said that predictions are hard, particularly about the future? And if he'd been an economist instead of a, a baseball player, he might have said economic predictions are hard, particularly macroeconomic predictions, because we don't tend to see the same macroeconomic situation twice. So we couldn't kind of go back and say, well, let's look at what happened the last four or five times the economy was hit by a, a worldwide pandemic, because thank goodness we hadn't had a pandemic of this magnitude since back in 1918, 1919, uh, with the great influenza pandemic. And some economists did go back and look at that episode, but the economy was so different in those days. And the response of the government was, was so different that there, there isn't too much to be learned that we can apply um, to the current situation. So I think that's kind of a broader point that sometimes macroeconomic um, forecasts are difficult to do. I wanted to follow up on your remarks about what we might expect during 2022. What you seem to be saying that you probably will have a lower inflation rate and you mentioned monetary policy, which seems to be uh, being adjusted. In fact, as we're talking here, the Federal Open Market Committee is winding up uh, one of its two-day meetings. Um, and so we may know more later this afternoon as to what changes um, they're contemplating making monetary policy. But do you think that the, 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 the Fed, to the extent that we know at this point what it's next moves will be that it's reacting properly to these very high inflation rates? Uh, if not, what would you like to see them do? Well, it's a, another great question. I, I do think inflation will come down this year, 2022, whether you measure it by the CPI that many people uh, in the public look at or the personal consumption expenditures deflator that the Fed uh, looks at, but it's going to be quite elevated uh, by almost any standard relative to a 2% target for the PCE uh, inflation that the Fed has. In terms of what the Fed will do, 
The Fed for a long time used the phrase transitory, which I always was bothered by because it, I think they meant it as a statement of time. Now, I think even though they've withdrawn the word, I think what they really meant was that it would go away on its own, which is like saying all of it is um, this sort of supply side set of factors and supply chain factors. I'm skeptical that that's the case. I mean, going back to the demand and supply analysis that we do in the textbook, some of it really is from hyper-stimulative fiscal and monetary policy. Keep in mind, the Fed has been buying mortgage-backed securities with a housing market on fire. So this was clearly a very, very stimulative policy. So the Fed will be pulling that back this year. They've announced a taper of asset purchases. Taper, of course, isn't tightening. It just means you're buying less and less. Uh, they've announced the likelihood of rate increases starting very soon, uh, and then possibly quantitative tightening uh, alongside of it, of actually trimming the size of their, their balance sheet. That will reduce pressures, but I'm skeptical it'll reduce so much this year. Go back to Milton Friedman's long and variable lags. I, I, I don't think that the Fed can turn on a dime in the sense of immediately bringing down inflation. The bigger question for the Fed, I would think, is what is it going to do about inflationary expectations? So once you accept the proposition, as I think you should, that it's not all these supply factors, demand had something to do with it, is there time to turn inflationary expectations around? And that's a question about communication and clarity, not the Fed's strong suit in the past two or three years. So I'm hopeful, but I, I think we'll have to see. Yeah, there, there is one point I was wondering about. Um, maybe we can get, get into this a little bit, and I can see what, what you have to, to say about it. But as you mentioned, um, the Fed does seem to be about to tighten. And as we talk about in the textbook, uh, the main way in which the Fed tightens is it increases its target for the federal funds rate, which, of course, is the interest rate that banks and a few other financial institutions charge each other on overnight loans. And um, they haven't quite said, they've, they've more or less indicated that they might start doing that in March. And they haven't quite said what the increases will amount to. I guess the, the, the betting on Wall Street seems to be that there'll be four rate increases during calendar year 2022. And each of those increases is expected to be a quarter of a percentage point. So right now we're at about zero as the, um, the target. And if in fact we get four increases, that would be one percentage point. So we'd end 2022 at about 1%. But if you look at the Federal Open Market Committee's um, forecast for the long run target they would like to see for the federal funds rate, it's two and a half percentage points. And that's sometimes called the neutral rate, where they're not really trying to expand aggregate demand faster. They're not trying to slow the expansion of aggregate demand down. They're just sort of steady as she goes. So if two and a half percent is neutral and we're only going to be at one percent, isn't monetary policy, at least as measured by where the target for the federal funds rate, isn't it still going to be pretty expansionary by the end of this calendar year? I see it the same way, Tony. Another way to look at it is through the lens of the labor market that the Fed uses. So 
in the Fed staff projections, the unemployment rate that we highlight in the textbook would continue to fall sort of toward the mid threes during 2022. That's below what the Fed staff at least think the natural rate is for unemployment. Now, the, the counterpoint to all this that some Fed officials and Treasury Secretary Yellen, a former Fed chair, have said is that, well, the answer to all this is we'll uh, increase the participation rate, we'll draw in more people into the labor force, and that's the answer to what seems to be this puzzle. I'm skeptical that monetary policy is the tool that's going to fix the participation rate, although I admit that it's a both an economic problem and a, and a social problem. So I, I do agree with you, policy still looks pretty expansionary to me. And of course, the Fed will also be glancing to its left and right, looking at asset price effects on the one hand. We know that increases in the safe rate of interest should reduce the price of assets and risky assets in particular, particular assets with long dated cash flows like technology stocks that will be on the Fed's mind. And then looking the other direction, the federal budget with zero interest rates, the interest costs of high and rising federal debt have not been so important, but now they, they might become so. So I think all of this makes this complication uh, a lot harder. So while everybody looks at it and says, oh, the Fed is tightening, that's directionally true if you're looking at a derivative. But the way you put it, if you look at levels, it's still pretty easy. Yeah, we, we talk in the, the updated eighth edition about how the Fed in its new monetary policy framework that it announced in 2020 seemed to be putting a greater emphasis on employment. And because they moved from a 2% inflation target, which they'd had for a number of years, to 2% on average, which means that they would be willing to accept higher rates of inflation. Obviously, that, that's what we've seen. And one of the things that we talk about in, in the updated edition is that this was a movement away from what had been a long-term focus on price stability. Now, of course, the Fed is kind of in a, a political bind because Congress has said in the Federal Reserve Act, they need to bring about maximum employment and price stability. So, you know, they, they always have to say, that's what we're doing, even if they might be emphasizing one or the other in a particular period of time. But as we talked about, and you've mentioned Milton Friedman's famous statement that monetary policy affects the economy with a, a long and variable lag. So what they're doing today is going to have effects on into the future, uh, even if they end up changing their orientation. So it used to be the case that the lesson, for many years, the lesson from the great inflation was that you couldn't let inflation get too high because, as you mentioned, expectations of inflation might rise, and then you would be stuck in a situation where it would be very difficult to bring inflation down without raising interest rates to such a level that you might provoke a recession. And I remember... Um, Sometime around 2016 or 17, Raphael Bostic, who is the um, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, had a, a very interesting graph. And he said, you know, the reason why we have to stay on top of inflation is if you look historically, every time inflation has increased significantly, we've ended up having to raise interest rates. And the result has been 
either a great slowdown in economic growth or an out-and-out recession. So they're in kind of an interesting situation now that they, they kind of moved away from that. And so they have not been quite as forward looking as maybe they were in the past saying what we do now is gonna have a, a, a significant effect down the road. Maybe I could pick up on one other thing that you mentioned. Um, you mentioned their asset purchases. So as we talk about in the, in the textbook, um, this is usually called quantitative easing, that the Fed gets into a bind as they were in, in 2008, and then again in 2020, that you drive the target for the federal funds rate down to zero. Now, what do you do? And the answer has been you buy long-term treasury securities like 10-year treasury notes. And as you mentioned, you buy mortgage-backed securities, particularly those uh, issued by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So they did a lot of that and their asset holdings now are close to $9 trillion, which is an enormous amount. So let me ask you two related points about that. One is, do you think that quantitative easing actually works either in 2008 or in 2020? Did they actually manage to expand the economy more than it otherwise would have expanded by these tremendous asset purchases? And then the related point is, and I think you addressed this in part already, if they reverse quantitative easing to quantitative tightening, as it's sometimes called, from QE to QT, what sort of risks does that pose to the financial system? Because we've seen some big increase in volatility in stock prices, particularly, as you mentioned, the prices of high technology firms. So QE, how do you how do you think that works? Has been worth doing, and then are there are there uh, hazards to unwinding it? Well, you know, as you know, there's a lot of empirical work on quantitative easing. Much of it actually done inside the Fed system. It does uh, suggest positive effects on GDP, uh, particularly operating through longer dated securities into the real economy through interest-sensitive spending, which as we outline in the book, it always struck me the risks on that QE were two. One, there's a big confidence interval around just how big those positive effects are. And second, and probably more important, is the unwinding, as you mentioned. So I don't know that QT is just QE with a minus sign in front of it, meaning there may be asymmetries in terms of financial stability, asset prices, and economic effects of, of quantitative tightening. And we can't go back and look at lots of episodes of this because there are not lots of episodes to look at. So I, I think this is probably very much on the Fed's mind. I'd be surprised if it's not. But I do think it is a, a real risk as they begin to dial back their, their balance sheet. And of course, the Fed hasn't really articulated a theory of how big its balance sheet should be to conduct monetary policy in the normal course. We don't know the answer to that. Yeah, those are good points because, um, as you say, we are in uncharted waters. And for the Fed to be holding $9 trillion worth of these securities is something that's unprecedented. And unwinding that, and I, I guess there's also the question of how they'll unwind. As you know, they've said they're going to stop adding to the pile, they're gonna stop purchasing more. Um, they haven't quite specified to this point at any rate, maybe we'll get some more clarity this afternoon, 
whether they'll reduce the pile by simply not reinvesting the principal as treasury bonds, treasury notes mature and mortgage-backed securities mature. And so they'll let it run off, as they say. But that's a very slow process. And if you think that the Fed's asset holdings are, are adding fuel to the fire of inflation, do you want to take the next step? And that is actually start selling some of these treasury notes and selling some of the mortgage-backed securities. And of course, we don't quite know what the reaction would be in the financial system to that. that would that be terribly disruptive? Or would, in fact, our financial markets sort of already expecting that that's going to happen, so it wouldn't be disruptive? Very interesting times, very difficult times for Fed policymakers to get a grip on exactly what the right path of policy should be. I, I completely agree. I think it will be hard for the reasons I said of looking to their left and right at both Wall Street and government budget, as well as the real economy and getting it right. It's a, it's a tough time. I, I just wish they would buy my tech stocks that are down. <laughs> so Glenn, let me ask you about the longer run outlook for inflation. As you know, there are some economists and some people at the Federal Reserve who say, well, you know, before the, uh, the pandemic, we'd gone through a long period of low inflation, low interest rates, and they would point to certain economic forces such as globalization, maybe making it more difficult for firms to raise prices, slow economic growth coming from slow productivity growth, uh, slow population growth, as we've seen most of the developed world um, move towards um, low birth rates. And so one question is, are we likely then to uh, say, if we push ourselves out two or three years, are we likely to be back in that situation where this will be seen as a blip and we're kind of these long run forces are resulting in low inflation rates and low interest rates again? Well, it's always more fun to talk about the long term because people won't remember if you and I got it right, <laughs> so that's easier. Uh, I think in the long term, though, it's important to separate real and nominal. So when people debate um, secular stagnation or trends in long-term growth, some people are optimists about productivity growth, others pessimistic. Those are stories about the real economy or real interest rates. And and for people who believe in a low real growth future, it would be consistent to also imagine a low real rate of interest that goes along with it. On inflation though, to the extent that we continued, hope we don't, but if we did continue to let demand growth run much faster than supply, we could get inflation, even in a slow growth scenario. And some of the factors you mentioned like globalization it's hard to see that the world going forward is going to be as integrated in goods and services as it was looking backward. So I, I think inflation still remains a worry, uh, even if you felt that in the longer run, the US may have a lower growth, lower real growth forecast. The Fed still has to do its job of getting demand growth back in line. Okay, very good. Well, I think we had a, a good discussion of the main points. I have a suspicion that we will be revisiting this topic, uh, for better or for worse, down the road. 
Just a reminder to listeners that this podcast is available on iTunes. If you'd like, you can subscribe and make us part of your podcast feed. And if you're so moved, you could leave us a review. Please also keep checking our blog at HubbardO'BrienEconomics.com. That's all one word, Hubbard O'Brien Economics, where we periodically post new content. You can subscribe to the blog to receive email alerts about new posts. In fact, the emails will contain the posts. We also have a Twitter account. You can find that by searching on the Twitter site for Hubbard O'Brien Economics. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard O'Brien Economics podcast. We will see you next time.